BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Having Funlessness with Jen Kirkman, episode 345. Sure. Oh my God. Having Funlessness with Jen Kirkman. So this is my podcast. I am Jen Kirkman. I am your host and only guest. I have two comedy specials. I'm going to die alone and I feel fine and just keep living. Both are streaming now on Netflix. I'm also a best-selling author. You can find my two books anywhere you buy books. Right now, they're on Amazon. There's an indie bookstore I like, but it is on back order. So I can barely take care of myself and I know what I'm doing and other lies I tell myself. This podcast is where I can show another side of myself, be myself, and you can enjoy being part of my weekly monologue like a friend leaving you a really long voicemail. Nothing is scripted. It's not joke per minute. It's sometimes funny, sometimes serious, but always honest and real. Now, this is the part where I normally announce my tour dates. But I'm announcing there are no tour dates in 2020 my friends. Oh, had to make an executive decision. I had some dates towards the end of the year that I thought, maybe. What if there's a vaccine? And then I said, well, better to reschedule them now than to wait too long and have them have to be in a year when I could go do them in March or something. So there you go. I haven't put my new dates on on sale yet or on my website I'm waiting to see so just know no touring for me for the rest of 2020 and probably not for the first few months of 2021 if you want to look at my face you can support my patreon patreon.com slash Jen Kirkman where at the very least for five dollars a month you get the video version of this podcast plus a 20-minute bonus episode once a month and each level that goes up from there offers more 20-minute bonus episodes 10 15 20 onwards and upwards the higher levels having merchandise that's exclusive to patreon so check it out patreon.com slash jen kirkman i am truly not working <laughs> so this is my job so come on along and let me entertain you while you pay my bills no drink minimums. There you go. All right. This week on the podcast, I'm going to be talking about that I want to be a spy. I probably had the chance to 
really go undercover and learn some stuff about a very famous golf club in Los Angeles. But at the time, I just wasn't focused on that. I'll read you an article about this place I used to work and talk about a memory I had as a little girl watching Johnny Carson. Well, not a little girl. I was a teenager. I was, uh, how old was I in 1991? Siri, Google, how old? 17, 16 going on 17. Or maybe 17 going on 18, whatever part of 91 that was. So, uh, yeah. Gwen Morrissey was on. And Bill Cosby. I know it was strange. So I'm going to reminisce about that and why that was important. We'll read some listener emails. Some of you are weighing in on many things. I'll discuss some uh, charity updates mid-episode and how you can be part of be part of it. And we'll see what else I get to. I have a bunch of topics written down. But I have a feeling old Jenny's going to spin a yarn on this episode. <laughs> so just sit back. Let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story. So where am I at? How's my COVID going? Have I podcasted since I got a test? Oh, I don't remember if I have. I think I did. Last week, I uh, talked about jury duty. I did successfully postpone it. They ignored my request to cancel it outright, even with a doctor's note. So they just gave me a new date, something in October. As it gets closer to the date, I'll deal with it again, because I'm not fucking going. That's all there is to it. There we go. All right. Wish I could reheat my warm water, but that would take too long. That's okay. So where are we at? Where do I begin? Where do I begin with this episode? So I've been listening to that podcast that's very popular right now. And I don't like popular podcasts, if that makes sense. I started listening to podcasts at the way beginning when it was your Ricky Gervais, you know, your Mark Marins, and it, and it was uh, interviews and people talking. I don't really love the overly produced ones necessarily. I don't like true crime is what I'm trying to say, but I do occasionally something tickles my fancy, and I kept hearing about Wind of Change, the podcast about how quite possibly the song Wind of Change by the Scorpions. Now, I actually never heard of that song. I barely know the Scorpions. If you asked me who they were, I would tell you they were a band, but I had no idea they were a German band. To me, they're just like an American hair metal band, so I'm wrong on that. But it, yeah, so it's a very compelling podcast, and it goes down all of these rabbit holes of like, is it even appropriate to discuss this at this point in time when we're at a conspiracy theory information 
misinformation, disinformation, shit fest with Russia. It, it just asks and answers many questions about the nature of conspiracy theories, good or bad. And, but there are some truths in this story, and I'm not spoiling anything, but the manager of a few bands like Bon Jovi, I forget who else, but this guy, Doc McGee, was a drug smuggler in the 80s and worked with Noriega. And when Noriega got busted and the whole crack team did, for some reason that's still unknown, Doc McGee, I mean, he should have been in prison for life. He was an international <laughs> drug smuggler. He um, got off and uh, instead put on a giant concert in Moscow with Bon Jovi and Motley Crue and all the bands that he managed. And they let him off and said, yeah, just do, just do this. Um, it, it wasn't even the concert they told him to do. They just said, just start a foundation that's like anti-drug. So this guy had a lot of connections with the CIA and with this and that. Anyway, the whole thing was fascinating. And part of the podcast is wondering, is this guy, you know, like a willing CIA agent? And and is the guy from the Scorpions a CIA agent? And And what did they know? And blah, blah, blah. And so I'm sitting there listening. So I went on a hike today in Los Angeles. I went to Griffith Park, which if you're not familiar, is gorgeous giant. I mean, miles and miles long park. Uh, you can stay on the bottom trails part. You can hike up the dusty trail mountains. And the views are stunning. And you get near the Hollywood sign and all that kind of thing. But there's no railings. I mean, you fall in two seconds, you're dead. Uh, but it's a beautiful, beautiful hike. And also the Griffith Observatory is there. But so you're kind of in that area of things and you know I'm very against anything I think we should shut the borders of every state and we should all be locked inside until we get COVID under control but so I'm not one of these people you see outdoor dining but I am okay because we don't have mass amount you know you see those pictures of people on beaches and you think what are they fucking stupid we, that's not what it looks like on our hiking trails and parks, at least not today in Griffith. It really was not jam-packed people. It, it, was, it was as desolate as, it in fact, even felt more desolate than when I just walk in my neighborhood. So, uh, yeah, it was cool. There was very few people. Everybody had a mask on. It was pretty hot. I mean, it's, I ain't gonna lie. It's hard to... It's hard to have that mask on your face when it's that hot and you're hiking up a steep mountain. But I did it. So, and I'll be honest, when no one's around, I pull it down. I pull it down. I just pull it down right under my nose. And then if I see someone in the distance coming, I pull it up. To show respect, even though I know I'm negative. For COVID-19. But that's okay, because that's how I do. I'm a good little patriotic girl. So... 
what is with these fucking comedians? This Brian Callen, this Brendan Schwab, they've got COVID-19. They went and did a show in San Antonio, and uh, I guess they both didn't get it too badly, but they were denying it existed and telling people not to wear masks, and what the fuck? That's not me. So anyway, I'm doing my hike, and I'm listening to this podcast, and I'm thinking, I want to be a spy. I really think I could do it. I really think I could do it. Because they were talking about some of the personality types of being a spy. And they, they said, you know, when you ask them questions, they're very relaxed and like, I don't know, could, is it true? Could be. You know, I can bullshit like that. But then I'm thinking, well, Jen, you're, you're thinking about being a retired spy and someone's interviewing you for a podcast. Yeah, okay, anyone can do you just You know where you can get that same satisfaction as a comedian? When you have to lie about other comedians you like. You take a relaxed posture. You go, yeah, she's funny. No, she's good. Yeah, she's great. Oh, no, he's good. Yeah, no, I know him. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I could do that all day long. But a spy. Can I really be one? I think, now, I, can I organize a ton of people and make sure they don't get killed under my orders? Well, I didn't say I had to be head spy, do I? So I don't, okay, I might be, I think I could be like 65% good at that naturally. Okay, so could I, could I carry out covert missions and not be like, oh my God, I'm just like busting to tell you guys this. I think I could. I could, I could keep a, a straight face, a poker face, blank stare. You know, I'm not one of those people that's like, <clears throat> Kathy, we have to get a drink. Okay, so you know how I told you I'm a secretary? Well, I am, but wouldn't it be crazy if I were also in the CIA? Like, there's people who can't handle their shit. They get so excited that they're spies that they tell on themselves. Now, not this, these are not, well, what story is that, Jen? I don't know. I'm just saying I bet there are. So, okay, what do I think I could what qualifies me to be a spy? I don't know. I just have a feeling, okay? Leave me alone. This is my interview to be one. I don't fucking know. Leave me alone. I just have a feeling I'd be a good one. But the the getting caught part, if I were spying on something and got caught, oh, I don't know. I don't know about that. You know how they say spies carry like a cyanide pill in their in their cheeks? So that if they're about to get caught and killed, they can just kill themselves. I guess it's sort of a, I don't know, is that more to avoid the pain of how they're going to kill you? Or is it just like, don't give them the satisfaction? Because how do you make that call in that moment? Oh, shit. Here they are. They caught me. Right? Uh, uh, the Nazis are here, whoever you're spying against. They're about to kill me. Isn't there 1% of you that thinks, I'll talk them out of it, and you don't bite down on the pill? That must be a hard moment to know. No, there's absolutely no coming back from this. They're, they're getting me. But I feel like I'd be that dumb, eternal optimist that's like, don't do it. Don't bite your own pill, Jen. And then 10 minutes later, I'm getting tortured, and I'm like, ah, and they've discovered the pill between my cheeks, and they took it from me, and I'm like, ah, my bones are getting sawed. So this is a fun podcast. 
This must be the episode that's not comedy. What's she talking about? Her bones are getting sawed. On the podcast? No, she's talking. No, oh my God. She's saying, what if they did? Why would they? Well, she wants to be a spy. Can't comedian. Why didn't she just do a Zoom show? What do you mean? Well, if she can't be a comedian right now, can't she just do a comedy show on Zoom? Why does she have to go be a spy? No, it's not a COVID thing. She just thinks she could be a good spy. I'm, I don't know. I, I, she's, I had to put it on pause because you're asking me questions. Just let her finish. That's the couple that argues while they listen to my podcast. So I don't know why I think I could be a spy. I probably couldn't. But you know that whole thing, um, you know, where they capture you and torture you. And they try to get info out of you. And you're such a good moral person. And you care so much about your fellow spy ring that you don't confess. I don't know what I would do. I mean, I can think all day long like well you know technically no of course I wouldn't they could keep torturing me I'm not giving up my friends or the location of the bridge I'm not I'm not doing it I'm a good moral person no I want to believe that about myself and I know I get to decide that I am good but in that moment where you're being tortured is it really a a value I mean I'm actually asking is it a moral dilemma at that point of pain is there a moment where you can't even access your moral code and for some people who don't give it up is it that they have a higher moral code than anyone else or is it that they have a better ability to compartmentalize pain and they can handle the pain more and later they can brag like yeah I mean it hurt but I did it for you Bill because I didn't want them to find where you guys were hiding. I mean, I don't know. I could be like, nothing is more important to me than not giving up my friends. Not even, ow, 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 that's my toenail. Oh, God, okay, they're on Route 1. They're hiding under a bunker there. (laughs) I'd probably give fake information. You know, I'd probably give, but but how do they know it's real or fake? They, They have to decide, right? The people torturing you have to decide if they if that sounds right so I feel like I'd be good at making up a fake story about where the people they're trying to find are I don't know listen I'm getting pretty stressed out about being a spy but I did think about you know there's so much there's probably so much going on underneath my nose I think in all of our lives that I don't know is going on, you know, and I don't mean to imply like Hollywood, but I'm, I am talking about, um, have I ever been around things that I'm like, oh, I bet that was totally shady. Does that make sense? So like, I'll give you an example. Um, I'll give you an example. Chelsea Handler, my old boss, and, you know, friend, I guess. She, she, I say I guess because I, anyone I haven't seen in a while, I'm not like, they're my best friend, but we're, we're cool. You know, she's showing up on, like, anytime someone wants to uh, 
impugn her. They'll mention that she was at Jeffrey Epstein's house once. Now, I know her. I was they I was in working for her during this time. Now, everyone that came in contact with Jeffrey Epstein is not part of a sex trafficking pedophilia ring. It's just not it. You know what I mean? But she was dating a fancy pants hotel designer. And, you know, to be honest, I always thought that guy was a piece of shit. I never met him, but he sounded awful. So, you know, but I didn't. What am I going to go? Your boyfriend sounds awful. When she would ask me things, sometimes I'd be like, I don't, I don't know. I trust him. But but uh, long story short. Because I, I worked on that show for seven years, but I took a one year. I took a one year. I took about eight, nine months off to go write on a sitcom. Well, I quit. I didn't take. I didn't, and then I decided to come back to the show. They, they let me. They were lucky to have me back. And during the time I wasn't there, she was part of the time I wasn't there, like a couple of those months she was dating this hotel guy. So anyway, I'm spending way too much time on this. But the point is, I remember she comes into work one day and she'd been in New York for the weekend with her hotel boyfriend. And, uh, you know, she's got her own things going on. She's got like a TV show, five sitcoms, this, that, blah, blah. She loves to drink. She's not really prying into the lives of her boyfriend's casual acquaintances. You know what I'm saying? So she's like, oh, we went to some rich guy's house. And none of us were like, who is it? What's his name? Let's Google him and see if he's up to anything nefarious. I mean, she literally didn't even say his name. She was like, and you know what was so gross? She's like, I wouldn't have gone if I had known this, but Woody Allen and Soon Yi were there. And she's really grossed out by the guy who married his uh, girlfriend's adopted daughter, right? So she's, uh, she said to Woody and Soon Yi, which I think is kind of genius, how did you guys meet? <laughs> but that was at Jeffrey Epstein's house. I don't know if she knew who the fuck that was. I don't certainly think she was like, so that was it. It's like she went with a million people. I've probably gone to so many things at the home of shady people that I don't know what the fuck it is. Because I'm like, who is this? Okay, bye. Thanks for the party. All right, bye. So I'm thinking like there's there's an example. Right? What was she going to do? Go through his drawers? But I'm just saying like, uh, you know, that's an example of like, ooh. So my example of being close to evil was when I worked at the Los Angeles Country Club, which is a fancy golf club in Beverly Hills. And I was a waitress there when I first moved to LA. And I, I've talked about this a million times, but the angle I'm going into it today is just how nasty it was I found out later. So, you know, I was one of the, I was, it was very, ugh, so gross. But it was, um, The wait staff, there was one other white woman waitress. She was older and French. Everyone else was Filipino. The Mexican contingency were the men in the kitchen. Anyone black was usually like the Jamaican, like lots of Jamaican men. Um, hosts, you know, guys at the door. And it was just, and then everyone who was a member was white. 
And, you know, I didn't know this going. That's what I'm saying is like my dad's a greenskeeper, like Bill Murray and Caddyshack. And he made a call to his friend-ish, just another greenskeeper in Los Angeles and says, you got any waitressing jobs? My 27-year-old daughter is moving to L.A. I mean, oh, God, you know, there was just, that's what you did. There was just no, like, Uber or Instacart or I'm not going to go to, there's no internet in that way, no apps. There's no, I'm going to be a gig culture person, you know. It was just like you, you temp or you wait stuff and that's it. And what I liked about this place is I could wait staff in the day and, you know, still have some nights free to do stand up. But I, I worked at night as well. And I've told you about the weddings that I worked there, just mo- mostly cater waiting, you know. Um, and that was a good place for someone of my terrible waitressing skills because the menu doesn't change too much during the daytime at grill room, as they call it. And uh, I don't have to make the drinks. And when you're cater waiter as, as a, you know, at, at the weddings, you don't have to take a food order. You just, here's your food and you put it down. So, but I'm thinking about this place and it was just, so the thing about Los Angeles Country Club is they didn't allow anyone that wasn't old money. And when we look now, I mean, I wasn't thinking about old money when I was 27. You know, it was like right after 9-11, a few months after and I was just like, thank God I didn't die in New York. You know, I was just kind of like a little traumatized and just kind of like, this is nice. There's palm trees and it doesn't smell like steel and death. Like, this is a good change of pace, you know. And I'm, I have probably $400 to my name total. And I live, uh, you know, in a rented bedroom in Los Feliz and uh, Feliz, whatever. And, uh, you know, I mean, I'm just trying to start my life. I'm not trying to investigate old money. But now I wish I had because I was waiting on some of like the DuPonts and the Carnations, you know, that shit. And I waited on Casper Weinberger. I was thinking about him today because, you know, President Trump commuted Roger Stone's sentence, which isn't the same as a pardon. But there was this radio show I was listening to that was talking about famous pardons. And George H. pardoned Casper Weinberger, who was selling weapons to Iran, part of the Iran-Contra, and he got pardoned on uh, Christmas Eve 1992, and 10 years later, February 2002, Jen Kirkman's waiting on Casper. He's having a private meeting in a private room with a bunch of military guys because they're planning the Iraq War. Planning the Iraq War! And little Jen Kirkman is waiting on the guys planning in the back rooms of a Los Angeles country club. They're you know, they're not planning it exclusively, but they're part of whatever they're part of. They're they're preparing their guidance that they were going to give to fucking Cheney or whoever. And every time I walked in the room, everyone would stop talking except Casper, who didn't even look up. And he assumed that I was a non-English speaking uh, Mexican waitress, which every... Everyone that worked there spoke perfect English, whether they were of Mexican descent or not. But in his mind, 
if there's a waitress there, I'm not even going to look up. She's Mexican, doesn't speak English. So he'd be like, and then I think what we should do. And then, Mr. Weinberger, there's a woman in here. Oh, she can't understand me. Anyway, and I go, <clears throat> more coffee, Mr. Weinberger. Oh, <laughs> okay. And they'd all get quiet. Man, I should have, like, what was I thinking? This, you think, I'm sitting here going, I could be a spy. Really? Look how I botched that mission. I could have learned Spanish. And I could have gone in there and, you know, oh, no, speak English. <laughs> or I just could have done that racist thing. And they would have believed it because they were racist. And I could just have them keep talking. I could have worn some kind of tape recorder on me because we didn't have phones yet that had voice memos. I still had a flip phone, you know, but I could have recorded something. I didn't. And I knew what was going on in there. And I was like, oh, like to the French woman, like they're planning the war in there, I think. And she was like, oh, I don't know. This is crazy. This reminds me of the Nazis. Like she was going nuts. So I'm busy talking to Mirabelle out in the hallway, wondering when I'm going to steal a, a oh, what's that dessert? I, creme brulee. Who's not going to eat the creme brulee? Come on. Failed my spy mission there. I don't know what I could have done. Could I have stopped the second Iraq war? I don't know. But I failed you all and I'm sorry. But I was thinking about that country club and I thought, God, the secrets of the old money people, right? And they were so hateful of performers. So I'll read you this article I found. So I started Googling about it because I was, I was, tr this is what I remembered from working there. The country club had excluded black people and Jewish people until the 90s, 1990s. And so there still weren't, I never saw any black members. I mean, I'm assuming I saw Jewish members, but, um, yeah, I, did. I mean, it was, I mainly just saw a lot of white people with red noses sitting around getting drunk in the day in a, not a fun like country club way. Maybe the first drink looked kind of fun and like a Ralph Lauren ad. And then three hours later, you're like, are you even golfing today, sir? Like just people wasted, just so wealthy, they can't do anything but drink about it, you know? And uh, just these young kind of like, just from a John Hughes movie, rich asshole young men that would be like, hey, 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 did you go to college? Like they're trying to figure out this poor person in front of them who's white. Like they'd never seen a white poor person. They're like, and I'm like, uh-huh. And they're like, oh. And they're just so dumb. They can't even think of a way to shame or make fun of me. But their girlfriends, don't talk to her like that. And I'm like, what are you even defending? Like, what is happening? And I, you know, I remember this middle-aged woman just, are your parents dead, dear? I'm like, no, we're working class. <laughs> but just, yeah. And But you know what I love? I love a Sambuca. I'm not going to drink one. I'm on a, by the way, I've lost four pounds. Thank you. Ooh, ooh. Nine more to go. Before I turn 46 on August 28th. I can do it. Oh, I'm doing it. I'm on a very strict diet. So, 
but not the kind where you gain it all back. Does that make sense? I've done this before. It'll work. So anyway, but a Sambuca, ooh, I love that licorice smell and taste. Mm-mm-mm. The little coffee bean in it and the snifter glass. Ooh, it is a fun drink because you hold, it, it comes in a specific glass called a snifter and you have to hold it a certain way. And if you have the Patreon, why wouldn't you get the Patreon? Now you can see me holding it. just the whole experience is fun. So at night, I loved the smell of Sambuca on the course. I loved the wet grass at night. Mm, that big outside air. I'll even I'll let the smell of cigars and cigarettes. I don't mind it outside mixed with the fresh grass and that intoxicating toxic Sambuca smell. Mm, 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 mm. Good stuff. Good stuff. Ooh, I loved all those smells. But I don't know what those people were doing all day long. I mean, I remember waiting on this girl who was having a high school graduation party. And she opened this tiny gift. And her mother goes, good things come in small packages. And she opens it. And she's like, oh, my God. And it was like keys to a Mercedes. And then her father was like, I got her a Mercedes, too. And it was like literally something as ridiculous as that. Like, he'd also gotten her a car, but they hadn't talked about it. She's like, well, I'll use one for this and one for that. It was insane. And I was just standing there with my mouth open. And she was like, what kind of presents did you get when you graduated from high school? And I was like, what? Presents for graduating from high school? What are you fucking talking about? <laughs> Nothing. I don't even know. What? Oh, my God. So... But that's all I can remember is that it was old money. You, if you were an entertainer, you really weren't allowed to join the club um, because that's usually who is new money, right? Like you can be like a working class kid from Massachusetts and become a millionaire and you can join things that millionaires join, right? But not this club. It was like, no, your family's not rich. You can't be part of it. You've got to be a DuPont or a Carnation or a Hilton or whatever. So that's what I remembered, and I remembered the that it had been had been a restricted club until the 1990s, and I thought, gee, let me look that up because you know if memory serves me, memory doesn't always serve me. So I found this article, and I just thought, this place was so bizarrely private. What the fuck was going on there? You know, maybe all the stuff was done by the time I got there, but again, I could have been a spy. I was, I was on the inside of a place that doesn't let anyone in. You understand? So I'll read you this article. This is from 2004. This is a year after I quit working there. LACC puts premium on privacy. This is from ESPN. They don't put out the welcome mat at the Los Angeles Country Club. Concerned as they are that someone might take it literally. We're not welcome there. Even the USGA... United States Golf Association can't get through the door. But little Jen Kirkman did. I have my own parking space. It is an intensely private club, one whose assiduous pursuit of a low profile is foiled by its 325 acres smack in the middle of Beverly Hills. Its land value alone once appraised at upwards of $3 billion. Moreover, how does the club avoid attention when the material it unwittingly provides is so rich? Ever heard the Esther Williams story? 
until the rule was rescinded only a few years ago, like in 2000. Women at the LACC were required to wear dresses or skirts on or off the golf course. For a charity dinner at the club one evening, the Aquatics movie star arrived elegantly attired in black, including a pair of designer silk pants. She was met at the door and informed that she would not be allowed in with pants, but she was welcome to change into one of the skirts the club kept on hand for guests unaware of its rules. No thank you, the evening's guest of honor said tersely, as she abruptly turned and left. Time erodes. So, I mean, yeah, they had entertainers in there. Like, I waited on, um, oh, what's that singer? It's not Mel Torme, but he wrote every single song ever. If you're ever at a wedding and you hear a song, you're like, that guy wrote it. Not Bobby Vinton. Oh, fuck, I can't remember, but not Alan Alda. Oh, my God, what's his name? It's something like Alan Alda. Fuck! Anyway, this um, woman I was uh, I was wa- waitressing a wedding, and uh, Paul Anka, and Paul Anka was one of the guests at the wedding, and the woman who was the wedding singer saw him sitting there, and he's again written like tons of songs that if you're a wedding singer you would sing, and she saw him and started having like, a panic attack, and was like, I can't. Can't sing his songs in front of him. <laughs> the wait staff was hiding her, and the French waitress was like, "Oh, get her a washcloth <laughs> for her forehead." You know, and the famous story I waited on Buzz Aldrin and all kinds of people. But I think he was just a guest at a wedding. I don't think he was a member of the club. So anyway. Time erodes the tightest of seals, even those imposed by a famously stubborn private club founded in 1899. The portrait that has emerged from the methodical seepage of historical snippets is that of a place that by turns has been amusingly quirky and disturbingly exclusive, once rejecting Jews and blacks. Why does that bother me? That Jews and blacks? Honey, the Jews and the blacks are here, but we, we, we all lives welcome here. Jews, blacks. Once rejecting Jewish people and black people, can you not write that? Is it okay to write Jews and blacks? That sounds weird. Anyway, but apparently still unwilling to embrace entertainers. The wake of another Masters tournament evokes a timely comparison to an Augusta National Golf Club, which is more exclusive but not as private. Um, The LACC, Los Angeles Country Club, general manager Kirk Reese says we're a terrifically private club, as you can imagine, he said, declining an interview request. It is so private, in fact, that Enlightenment has had trouble getting past the guarded gates. The club didn't add Jewish and African... Oh, in this sentence, they're saying it more politically correct. The club didn't add Jewish and African-American members until the 1990s. It did not always handle those tenuous first steps into the 20th century gracefully. As for entertainers, the irony is that it has never needed vaudevillians to fend off boredom. LACC has been unerringly entertaining in its own right. However, clumsily it has danced to its own drumbeat. Is there another club in America whose history evokes names as diverse as Ronald Reagan and Charles Manson? So Ronald Reagan was a member. Um, And it was because he was president they wouldn't have allowed him in when he was just an actor. 
I wonder if there's any Gen Z that's like, Ronald Reagan was an actor? No, you've all seen Back to the Future. That joke was made in that movie. But maybe, I, I don't fucking know. Ronald Reagan was a, a handsome Hollywood actor before he was president. So then, um, and then the, the, uh, the judge that presided in Manson's trial who senten- sentenced him to death as a member. <clears throat> so the North Course... Uh, was designed in the 20s and is widely regarded as one of the finest in the world. The uh, Golf Association persistently attempted to persuade the golf club to host the U.S. Open, and they said no. So the curtain remains tightly drawn on the LACC, even though it no longer has anything to hide other than its past. It was the most exclusive genteel club In California, says Los Angeles native Bud Bradley, who won the USGA last year. The club predictably doesn't mention its aversion to Jewish people, which is generally regarded as the root of its prohibition against entertainers, many of whom were Jewish. Among them was Groucho Marx, whose denial for membership prompted his legendary rejoinder, Why would I want to belong to a club that would have me as a member? Now, this is when I read this today, my mind exploded because I've always known that Groucho Marx quote. Why would I want to belong to a club that would have me as a member? And I always thought it just came out of nowhere. And then he was just saying in general. Why would I embrace anyone that likes me? You know what I mean? It was a self-deprecating thing that I didn't think came from an actual rejection of a club. And I think back to my famous story of how I went to a popular rich girl's slumber party. Like, talk about old fucking money. I don't know. I I tell you this on the podcast. Every once in a while, those rich kids would embrace me. They would look at me. They would wonder, what is this self-confident person? And And they invited me to their slumber party. This girl, Jennifer, and I went. And she said, it's a costume party. And I went head to toe, dressed like Groucho Marx, in a man's suit with a cigar, a wig, glasses, mustache, the whole thing, eyebrows. No change of clothes, just that and pajamas for the pajama party part. And everyone else dressed up as Madonna or Sonny and Crockett from Miami Vice, minimal costumes. When I say people dressed up like Madonna, they wore rubber bracelets and put a ribbon Put that lace ribbon from, you know, desperately seeking Susan in their hair. And when I say they dressed up like Crockett and Tubbs, they wore a pastel shirt with white pants, no socks, and some loafers. I was full outfit. And I didn't even know that much about Groucho Marx. I just loved that quote. And I just thought he was, like, I I didn't know much about him. I just knew who he was from my mom telling me. And then I dress up like him and I get kicked out of the slumber party for being, I don't know, not cool. (laughs) And I get asked to leave early. Jennifer pretended she was sick, said we all had to go home. I went home and then found out no one else did. I got kicked out of a private, exclusive, rich people club, dressed as Groucho Marx when I'm 12, and later, go work for the rich people club that Groucho Marx was not allowed in. 
If that's not a full circle of something, I don't know what is. I loved When I read that, I couldn't believe it. So let's keep reading. Bing Crosby's home on Mapleton Drive backed up to the 14th fairway of the North Course. That was fun when I would kind of get to walk the course. You could see all these really beautiful houses. Um, Crosby was dying to get into that golf club, but they wouldn't let him in because he was an entertainer. Bing Crosby. That's like saying you wouldn't let in. I don't even know because we don't have these like wholesome. I mean, he was an alcoholic who beat his kids and one of them killed himself. But besides that, he was beloved. He was the Christmas, you know, Christmas. Why Christmas? Bing Crosby. Come on. Not allowed to be a member. See, what's going on? You don't want to entertain. So anyway. It was peculiar. Said United States Golf Association president, if anybody was ripe for membership, it was Bing Crosby. What an asset he would have been. The club took its Hollywood blacklist so seriously that when a member once nominated an actor for membership, not only was the actor rejected, but his sponsor's membership was also revoked. The club was not amused either when actor Victor Mature, self-employed, employed some self-deprecating humor in his bid to join, he was told that no actors were allowed. Mature argued, I'm no actor and I've got 27 pictures to prove it. You may have guessed already, no comedians need apply either. But an on-silver screen cowboy named Randolph Scott got to join the club because he married the DuPont heiress, Marion DuPont. And I waited on some DuPonts up in that club. So they had some like sports broadcasters, a couple of things, but mainly no entertainers. An influx of younger families has softened some of the hard lines, bringing generational changes. You know, it's not just formal dining. That's when I started working there. I think it had opened up a little bit. But so this member, I was saying, I don't remember anyone golfing. Even with about 1,600 members, no tea times are necessary. I mean, that's a big deal. That's how you keep everything organized. Otherwise, everyone's just, but there was never any like, big mass of people waiting to golf and that so anyway so I did remember this correctly by some estimates only a fourth of the members ever play several men uh preferred consuming gin all afternoon every afternoon they never went on the course the club has never hosted a U.S. Open uh just reading here Eventually, uh, only a year ago, actor, comedian, and social commentator Ben Stein wrote in his E! Online column of his distress when he was told that his interest in joining LACC might be for naught, not because he is Jewish, but because he's an entertainer. Showbiz equals untermenschen, he wrote, invoking a popular word from the Third Reich, one that translates to subhuman. Um, then, after Bing Crosby's home, uh, Aaron Spelling built a 
56,000 square foot eyesore that you could see from the golf course. And backing up the 13th green was the Playboy Mansion. Hugh Hefner was always asked if he could be a member. He also wanted to install a gate that would link the property to the club. And he said he can offer an occasional Playboy bunny to appear. The club was like, no, thank you. Hef eventually built a sanctuary for exotic birds whose persistent squawking became an earache at the country club as well as penance for a club that once rejected Bing Crosby and his dulcet tone. So there you go. So what the fuck is going on at that weird club? I don't know. I had my chance. Boots on the ground. Could have started my spy career then. And I failed. I failed. Ah. <sighs> So I want to talk about another memory I had about Morrissey being on Johnny Carson. Oh, my God. What is this Boston accent coming up? But before I do, let me just remind you again. So there's a new thing going on with my Patreon. We now have annual memberships. So if you pay for a year in advance and you can, if you have a membership already, you can change it to annual And you save 16% a year. That's their number. They're beta testing. They're letting some accounts have this, and I'm one of them. So if you want to do it, I truly don't care either way. Um, It's not a money grab on my part. It's, I, I literally don't care. I have a bunch of memberships to things. Some memberships I prefer the month to month, even if I can save more by doing it for a year. Some things I'm just like, no, I know I'm going to always use it. I'm going to do a year. So I don't, either way, literally doesn't matter to me. Patreon.com slash Jen Kirkman. Come get your bonuses. If you're a $35 and up member, you get a bonus of me calling you my best friend and telling a story of how we met. These stories are completely made up. But let's not let that cheapen the fun. This week, my best friend is Mike Tripico. I know you're like, well, how do you not know your best friend's name? Oh, I don't know. I'm getting old. Getting older. So Mike is a $35 a month patron. But that's not the important part. The important part is he's like my best friend. Now, this is how we met. We actually met at the Los Angeles Country Club. This is crazy. Maybe that's why I wanted to talk about it today. So I'm, you know, waitressing there. And I see this guy hiding in a closet. And he's like, psst, psst. And I'm like, what? And he's like, I'm trying to become a member. And I'm like, well, I can't help you. I'm just a waitress. And he's like, well, just, you know, There's a guy who's so drunk over there, he's sleeping. I'm going to steal his hat and sunglasses, and I'm going to put them on. And then no one's going to bother me. So I just want to let you know, can you not bother me? I just need to be a member for the day. And I was like, buddy, you're putting me in a weird position, you know? He's like, my name's Mike, Mike Tripico. I'm like, hey, Mike. So I go, all right. I don't see a thing. So I turn around. Mike takes the hat and glasses off this drunk guy who's asleep. Nobody minds. Nobody's paying attention. Everyone's so bombed on their gin. He puts the hat and sunglasses on. He sits there. And then my boss comes over and goes, hey, 
Why are you ignoring, uh, Mr. Swanee? That's Mr. Swanee. He comes here every week in his hat and his glasses, and you're not taking his drink order. But I'm like, that's not Mr. Swanee. That's this Mike Tripico guy. I go, oh, oh. So I get a drink. I get him his drink, and Mike drinks it. And he goes, pss, pss. And I go, what? You are bothering me. You are just some weird guy that came in and is trying to be a member, and I can't help you. And he's like, well, I got to be honest with you. I'm actually, I'm recruiting people. And I'm like, for what? To be a spy for the CIA? And he was like, no, no, no. To be on Star Search. And I was like, Star Search? That show's still on the air? And he's like, yes. But we're looking for new kinds of talent. And I was like, are you some kind of agent? He's like, exactly. He's like, the talent is waitress. And I'm like, waitress is going to be a category? He's like, yeah, we're going to set up tables on the stage of Star Search. And we're going to have people like be rude to you and not tip and just ask you stupid questions about the menu and then blame you for the food and see how well you handle it. You know, do you have any snappy comebacks or win them over? And I'm like, this sounds awful. And he was like, well, that's what I wanted to ask you. Would you want to be like one of the test people on this Star Search episode? And I was like, no, this sounds stupid, Mike Tripico. And he was like, all right, well, you know, well, anyway, long story short. They eventually found out Mike was just, you know, sneaking into the club and they kicked him out. And But we remained friends and he was an agent and... Um, he realized that star search waitressing idea was pretty stupid. So. He actually ended up opening a restaurant. And in the restaurant. You know those places where the wait staff yells at you? That's Mike. He invented all that. Because I said nobody wants to role play customers being mean to them. That's not fun for anyone. I don't know why I just put gum in my mouth. What am I stupid? So, Mike invented Go Fuck Yourselves, which is a pizza place in Long Island, but they're branching out all over America. I'm sure you've heard of them. And you walk in, and the wait staff throws a hot pizza pie in your face. And if you get burns, they say, well, we can't do anything about it because you walked in and there was a sign that said you might get a third-degree burn. And you'd be surprised at how many people are, like, still mad about it, even though he warned you, you know? So, anyway, Mike's doing great. Haven't seen him in a while because of COVID. You know, I usually go to New York. My, yeah, go to Go Fuck Yourselves. Um, find one in your area. And again, thanks, Mike, for supporting me during this. Speaking of restaurants, we are well over $700 to send to uh, CORE, which is a charity that takes care of restaurant workers and their families who have lost, you know, basically everything due to COVID. Um, and they give priority to, to people who actually have COVID. And so I'm really excited about that. So that, the way we raise that money is people buy my merchandise. You go to jenkirkman.com and click shop, and it brings you to my Tee Public store. I do sell masks, but every piece of merchandise that you buy, um, I don't, so if something is 20 bucks, I don't get all 20 bucks, but I get a portion of it. And my portion, I donate to these charities. Um, 
for the rest of the year, I have decided that the new, so I usually do a different charity every month that has something to do with COVID. But I've made the executive decision that for the rest of the year, I will be donating to um, just one um, charity. And I, of course, can't find it, but I had it here. Um, oh, fundthefrontlines.org, which is, uh, you know, to get healthcare workers the PPE that they need because we are going to have a second wave of COVID. The first wave isn't even over. Uh, hospitals are just fucking completely full. Healthcare workers don't have what they need. It's not going to get better or easier before the end of the year. So I want to make sure everything's going towards that. So stay tuned. I'm already designing my Christmas and holiday merchandise. And there'll be Christmas and Halloween masks and t-shirts and sweatshirts and mugs and notebooks and everything. But you can, again, get some of the favorites in the store now. Um, check it out. I have really cute stuff. And then I have started something that I'm super excited about called Anxiety Bites. And it's a weekly newsletter where I take a different – so I have that big email that I send out for anyone that thinks they might be having some anxiety. And you can just go to jenkirkman.com right there on the homepage. You can uh, – or you can just email me, fun at gmail.com and say anxiety help in the subject heading. I'm sending you a 20-page email with tips and rabbit holes to go down to help you cope with your anxiety. This is not a replacement for therapy. This is not for people who need hardcore medication and or whatever. This is just what I know from my experiences. And I feel I'm, I'm much better and so I want to help. And, but Anxiety Bites is my bite-sized weekly newsletter that focuses on a different topic of anxiety every week. So the first newsletter I sent out last week was if you're the type of person that your panic and anxiety manifests in feeling like you can't breathe or get a full breath and everyone goes, take a deep breath. And you're like, that's actually making it worse. If you go to jenkirkman.com slash anxiety bites or just go to my website jenkirkman.com and look for the button that says anxiety bites that will take you to where you can sign up for the weekly newsletter and if you missed last week's what you can do is once you go to that page on my website jenkirkman.com click anxiety bites you can find the link to last week's newsletter and I lead everyone through a video um, of doing a progressive muscle relaxation kind of based on the one that I took at this fear flying course years ago. And it's really fun and it's it's not done in a serious, we're whispering in spiritual way. It's not that at all. Don't worry, I'm not turning into a comedian who thinks they're a fucking leader. Um, I just, this is fun for me and I don't like to do Zoom shows. So I thought, why not use my humor to help people with something that I'm kind of familiar with. So this week's topic, um, well, by the time you hear this, it's already going to have gone out. But again, just go to that page and you'll be able to read old newsletters and sign up for new ones. And, you know, a lot of people are like, I don't want to join your Patreon, but can I, can't I give you money? I'm always like, no. And I've realized, you know what? Fine. You can give me money. So I created an account at buymeacoffee.com. And uh, the way it goes is you can buy me a coffee. And I think it's like, 
you give $5 and a dollar for every $5 I get. I donate it to the um, Anxiety and Depression Association of America. So I figure if you like the newsletter, if you like the anxiety tips, you can buy me a coffee. Uh, as much, you know, as much as you want, anywhere from $5 to 25, whatever you want to do. But, um, I do donate a portion of that as well to charity. So there you go. Fun time. So let's, I don't even think I'm going to get to my listener emails this week. I'm, I'm sorry, kids. Um, but let's get to, so I had this overwhelming urge to listen to Morrissey today when I was hiking, which isn't really like hiking music, but turns out it kind of was. And I was remembering the time. Now, I don't even think you have to be a Morrissey fan to like this story. I was remembering the time that in 1991, he went on Johnny Carson. Now, for there are so many talk shows now. And it's not weird at all for anyone who's sort of on the fringe to be on anything. It's like, it's not that weird, right? But back then, for Morrissey, who the Smiths, the band that he was in, had, had already broken up. He'd had a couple albums. This was the early 90s, but he still was not at all mainstream. And he was getting into this kind of rockabilly vibe, and he was super gay-looking, in, in quotes, gay-looking. I mean, I, I think Morrissey's actually doesn't even identify as gay, but he's been with men, he's been with women, he's bi, whatever. But the, uh, you know, the look was definitely threatening, to the male hetero status quo, right? This He had this deep, deep V-neck on, very sexual movements, but they weren't hetero. Does that make sense? You had to be there. So there was just something about him that we understood, women understood, gay men understood, and then everyone else is like, hmm, what is this? So Johnny Carson is, you know, this is what's so interesting is Morrissey has this song called Sing Your Life that I loved. And it, whenever I do an interview, the interviewer thinks they're really asking an interesting question. They're like, it says on your Wikipedia that Morrissey was an influence in your comedy. Huh? That can't be real. I'm like, Ugh, it's such a boring, basic question. Yeah, it's real. So it's on, I mean, most things on Wikipedia aren't, I get it, but it's not that crazy. Like, Morrissey was really witty. He was always quoting Oscar Wilde, making up his own quotes. Like, a lot of my comedy that has that kind of, like, wink and a nod and, like, death stuff, that's all being raised on Morrissey, right? And um, so his song, Sing Your Life, is, I mean, it, the lyrics are literally about someone being a singer, but the way I took it was, tell your story, speak your truth before your dumb life is over. And there was something about it that that song came out right when the episode of 90210 where Brenda decided to do an open mic and just talk. There was something starting to brew that was like, I would like to talk into a microphone on stage and maybe do comedy. And so I'm just going to play you a little of this song and then we'll get into the Johnny Carson of it all. But let's see. Walk right up to the microphone and name all the things you love, all the things that you loathe. Is that not comedy? Okay, hang on. Hang on. 
All of this will end, so sing it now. You know, it's a teenager that's pretty deep. You're like, yeah, this, my life will end. And then at the end of the song. Here we go. I like this lyric. Make no mistake, my friend, your pointless life will end, but before you go, can you look at the truth? You know, that's not usually like the kind of music that teenage girls are wah over, you know, at least not the ones like en masse, right? So this Morrissey is uh, going on Johnny Carson. Now at this moment in my life, I'm kind of like starting to get interested in comedy, but I'm not, it doesn't dawn on me you can do that for a job. Like I'm still dancing and acting and going, you know, applying to colleges to be a dancer. So I'm not quite there yet, but there's something brewing in the back of my head. And I love Johnny Carson. I love late night TV. I love Joan Rivers as the guest host. And so it was this convergence of my life to see the guests that night were Bill Cosby, rapist extraordinaire, who we did not have any idea back then was, Morrissey and Johnny Carson. And so I love Johnny Carson. I love Bill Cosby, but I love Morrissey. And I'm watching these two guys I know, Cosby and Carson, kind of not get it with Morrissey. And I'm like torn because I'm like, that's my comedy world. But then my young Morrissey world, and it was just wild. But it was this Johnny Carson like completely lost control of the crowd. And they were screaming so loud, he ended up not even saying Morrissey. He just pointed like, he's over there. But Bill Cosby wasn't really getting laughs that night. And he just... Like, he had his chair that he sat on, and then he folded it up, goes, well, I'm going to get going, because Morrissey's coming, I'm going to play this, um, you know, and I don't want to, I'm sorry to trigger everyone with Bill Cosby, but, so he's in the middle of his bit. You say, look, idiot, this is, this is the bathroom, not the bank. So I want to, I'm going to pack up now, because. Okay, so as a comedian, I now know what just happened. That was his big closer. This is a bathroom, not the bank. That should be, and it was like, ha, ah, like decent laughs, but that's laughs you want at the beginning of your set. So he was like, I just fucking ate it. This crowd isn't for me. And he just stands up, folds up his chair. But it's so amazing what a sociopath he is because he's not even acting mad that no one wants to hear him. And this guy is drugging and raping women probably right after the show. And you go, wow, did he hide it. Wow, zawa. I just a little plug for myself. That's why I always say, yeah, I'm a little cranky. I got my issues. But I'm basically decent. I'm not trying to be something I'm not. You know, he was like the father to everyone and pull up your pants and I'm decent. And I'm telling you I'm decent, but you also know that I'm like a cunt sometimes. And I get in the comments on my bad day, you don't want to. Maybe I don't like you. I'm unsubscribing. Well, I'm not raping and drugging people, and that is the bar. All right, so anyway, here we go. I'm just saying trust people who show you all their sides. That's all. Okay, so he's he actually is doing this little game, and I remember. So I wanna, I'm going to back up now because Marcy is coming. 
God, it's so too bad he was a racist. He was such a a fun dad, you know? Did I say a racist or a rapist? A rapist. Okay, so Morrissey's trying to come on. Man brings his own furniture. Right. Bring, <laughs> bring my own chair. <laughs> because I got a feeling when Marcy comes on, yeah. this place... This place is not going to be yeah, standing. Yeah, you're probably and, right. And we won't be able to tell this from an earthquake. That's about it. Yeah, so... We hadn't seen something on The Tonight Show like that in a long time. And the fact that it was my guy who sang about death was getting this kind of excitement. It was such a big deal. It was like, Morrissey! I'm like in high school that day, like counting down the fucking hours with my friends. Like, Morrissey's on Johnny Carson tonight! So there's a great article in Vice called um, 25 Years Ago, Morrissey Ruined Bill Cosby's Appearance on The Tonight Show. Bill Cosby was capping off the prime of his career when he appeared on The Tonight Show on June 14, 1991. Okay, so I was 16 going on 17. He had just wrapped up the seventh season of The Cosby Show. He was soon to release his 20th comedy album. This is decades before the darker side of his personal life would come to light. He was America's comedian. There was no where he would go. Blah, 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 blah. On this evening, as he sat on the chair trading jokes with Johnny Carson, his celebrity was eclipsed by the presence of the man waiting backstage, a man who had never appeared on American television. This was Morrissey's t- debut. Days before the show taped in Burbank, there was already a buzz in town about Morrissey. Despite having 10 years of professional music under his belt, beginning with his work in The Smiths, to most adults in America, including Cosby and Carson, the British singer's name was largely unknown. After all, this was someone who had not only never performed on network television, but didn't have any hit songs, had never done a solo tour in the U.S., even MTV, a channel meant to spotlight alternative artists, snubbed his videos. So this is right around where the Mexican community gave Morrissey his American career. The Mexican, California Mexican community and Mexico itself revived Morrissey as a solo artist. Um, <clears throat> but while Morrissey struggled to catch on with mainstream America, he built a cult following with a despondent younger generation, that is me, one of the most internationally obsessive in music history. Thank you. They were social outsiders united by their devotion to an English icon. Two weeks prior to his scheduled Tonight Show appearance, Morrissey touched down in the U.S. to embark on the six-week leg of a worldwide tour to promote his solo release, Kill Uncle. The Kill Uncle tour kicked off in California. The shows sold out fast. The entire tour sold out fast, but the West Coast stretch sold out faster. His popularity in the area could be attributed to heavy rotation from KROQ. But the speed of the ticket sales was a precursor to the insanity of the tour itself. Mania hit the States in the summer of 91 the same way Beatlemania had done so almost 30 years earlier. His rabid fans wreaked havoc on unsuspecting arenas who were drastically underprepared for the chaos. It was utter fucking pandemonium. 
I was part of it. Fans showed up in hordes, creating a nightmare for venue security. Many tearful fans rushed to the stage to indulge in the Morrissey concert tradition of throwing gifts towards him. Flowers, cigarettes, or very often their own bodies. Um, volumes of Oscar Wilde greeting cards, blah, blah, blah. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Ding, ding, ding. Okay. It wasn't just the fervor, it was the bing and the bong and the bing. Oh, so this is what was cool. And you can hear in the audience, I'm going to play it for you. It's men screaming for Morrissey. And that's why I think Cosby and this old guard were like, well, what's going on? Because it wasn't screaming teenage girls. So it wasn't just the fans' fervor that was unprecedented, but the diversity. Fan bases of male musical phenomenons had historically leaned heavily female, conjuring Images of seas of swooning fangirls. This was the standard since the 1950s when parents got so worked up about Elvis's gyrating hips on CBS's Ed Sullivan show. So because of Morrissey's ambiguous sexuality and refusal to conform to the male frontman stereotype eschewing the norms of traditional rock stars, the crowds he drew were a motley crew of genders, sexualities, sizes, and ethnicities, all connected by their devout belief in a god they called Maz. Most of the people who jump on stage and kiss me are male, and they're not all young. They're grown, very big men. I can't think of another incident in pop history where men jumped on a stage and kissed a male artist. This is about a concert, not Carson. So Morrissey Fever caught on early the day of Morrissey's scheduled Tonight Show performance as fans lined up outside the TV studio hoping to be admitted. Only a couple hundred lucky people would make it in. We came to see Johnny, said one poor older woman in line who had never heard of Morrissey. When the segment threw back to the studio, the anchors were at a loss for words, struggling to wrap their brains around the immense popularity of a person they never heard of. Uh, I almost ran into about 10 of his fans coming to work, said an incredulous Fritz Coleman, a newscaster on a local Los Angeles show. Purple hair and stuff. One of his co-anchors added, it's awful, these kids, when you really think about it. Oh, you millennial Gen Z, we were you before you. Fans weren't the only ones excited about the appearance. Uh, it was an odd time in the show's history to make his fateful debut. Johnny Carson was still in top form as a host, but the 65-year-old was falling out of touch with the times. He had already announced his departure from the show and was running out the clock on his contract. Okay. By that time the following year, Jay Leno would be sitting in Carson's seat. The night Morrissey appeared on his show would make him wish he had retired sooner. Right off the bat, it became obvious it would not be a typical episode. At the top of the show, sidekick Ed McMahon, before delivering his Here's Johnny line, announced the show's guests, Bill Cosby, Bo Bridges, and the songs of Morrissey. The many fans in the studio erupted at the delivery of Morrissey's name. I have all of this to play for you because never in the history of The Tonight Show did you hear screaming um, during that part. <clears throat> Carson was a seasoned host. He'd done over 2,000 monologues, not all of them perfect. He certainly knew what it was like to die on stage. Maybe this monologue wasn't his all-time worst bomb, but it was certainly up there. The president is out here. Did you know that? He asked, setting up his opening joke. Silence. Do you care? It just got worse from there. Carson tried to do his usual jokes about celebrities, news, and politics, but the audience kicked his comedic rhythm straight up the ass. Um... After the next joke, Carson, somebody, 
heckled him. After the next joke, Carson said, oh, shut up. And then he looked at Ed McMahon and said, ugh, what do I care? I'm leaving. So now as a Morrissey fan, I'm like, yeah. But as a comedian, I'm like, don't treat comedians like that just because some fucking punk ass music thing you like is coming on next. You know, I'm both. And it's amazing when I was watching it that I didn't know at that time. So. Carson kept smiling at McMahon during the show like nothing was going right. At one point, he leaned in and said, I wish I was at a show business this very minute. Bill Cosby must have been watching all of this unfold backstage because when it was time to entertain the crowd, he came prepared. After being introduced, he, he entered the set carrying his own folding chair and sat down in front of the audience. Please, please, he said over their applause. We have to get on because Morrissey is coming. Finally, this was their kind of comedy, and they laughed genuinely for the first time since the show started. I was talking to Morrissey, and he said that he loved my work, and he said for you guys to pay attention to what I say, Cosby continued. Morrissey said, you didn't pay attention to Mr. Carson, and your patience ran very thin, and Morrissey felt that you were all disrespectful, so Morrissey wants you to all apologize to Mr. Carson. So Cosby then tried shifting to his normal routine about Father's Day, which was that weekend, but the audience didn't care for these Morrissey-free jokes. I kind of love that America's rapist was bombing with this Father's Day shit because Morrissey people saw through it. Not that we were like, he's a rapist, but they were just like, we don't have time for this. Um, he said, so Cosby continued to pepper them in, ending punchlines with, you know what I'm saying? Morrissey did. After Cosby's disastrous set, the show returned from commercial break and Carson couldn't resist one last poke at the audience, which was chomping at the bit for the musical guest to be introduced. I remember this like it's in my DNA. He goes, Morrissey had to leave, but we do have Jerry Vale for you, he teased, and the crowd booed him. But I remember at home fucking dying laughing. <clears throat> okay. So then Morrissey comes on and sings Sing Your Life, which isn't one of his hits at all. And I'm freaking the fuck out because he's singing the song that's inspiring me to know that I'm going to do something somewhere someday with a microphone. And I'm just like having an out-of-body experience in my living room, like little Jen Kirkman who'd never been anywhere except on vacation at Disney World, just going, I know I'm going to be there, like freaking out. So here he comes. So let's listen to this. Oh, yeah. Okay. We better go to a commercial. Okay. Yeah. Then we'll come back. Because Marcy's coming. Oh, really? Okay. okay, so here's Ed McMahon announcing it. Come on, my computer's freezing. Why is my computer free? My computer's trying to embarrass me because for once I had everything all set up. Oh, well, I guess we'll just have to skip that. But here comes Moz. But we do have Jerry Vale for you. Oh, that's the joke. Okay. Okay. All right, folks. Now, Morrissey had to leave, but we do have Jerry Vale for you. All right. All right. All right. Trying <laughs> <laughs> to get a rise out of you. Okay. This is a very popular. Fine, anytime, right? He's a very popular young. He sold out the forum here in Los Angeles. Yes. Now they're cheering structures. Actually, cheering buildings now. He'll be appearing in New York City at Madison Square Garden. Okay. Too far away. How about July 13th? That's right. 
I don't, they don't like dates, just buildings. Okay, here's his latest album. Would you welcome... And then when I heard this... He's gyrating his hips like Elvis, and he's got the rockabilly band. And because I know that Maz loved American stuff like Elvis on the TV, I knew he was fulfilling a childhood dream in that moment, too. And if you liked him, you just got it, you know? And again, this is before we knew he had some racism issues. But I hadn't... So then, there's this song that Morrissey has, and we're almost done here. There's a song that Morrissey has called There's a Place in Hell for Me and My Friends. And I've always taken it to be a little bit of a song about being in the closet. You know, this is also the height of AIDS. And there's this beautiful song about, you know, when we go, we're never alone. Um, and, you know, our blood and our bones won't get in the way, making us ill the way we did when we lived. And... I'm going to, I had the song all dialed up. I am so annoyed right now. Morrissey, uh, I'm just going to play what it normally sounds like. And you'll be like, oh, that's a sad little ditty. Hang on one sec. I really did have this ready to go. I just, I don't know what happens when I'm, okay, here it is. So this is the version that, Again, it was a B-side. It was a B-side. You, you wouldn't think he's going to play this on TV, but this was what the B-side was. Okay, so that's the song that I know. All of a sudden, after Sing Your Life, here comes this shit. Hang on. And now he's dancing like crazy. And I hear this and I go, what? I didn't know there was 
a different version to place in hell. And I can't believe he's singing a song with those lyrics on the TV and that they made it this rock version. I was, you understand, diarrhea on the floor, losing my shit. These moments as a teenager, when we came together as a, a world without the internet, you know what I'm saying? It was Everyone was fucking watching this. And older people were like, what is this? And we were like, we're Gen X. We're non-gendered. We're all fucked up. <laughs> Such the perfect choice. A place in hell. Me and my gay friends were being crucified by the world. We're dying of AIDS in numbers. And you, Bill Cosby, are a fucking rapist on the couch, and you're gonna end up in fucking prison. And all these kids screaming in the audience are on the goddamn right side of history. You fucks, you old guard, fuck you! I just was crying. I remember my mother just, Jennifer, you, I can't believe he's on TV. Oh, this is like when Elvis was on. Oh boy, well really, what is he, what is his shirt is completely see-through. This is wild, oh my, I've never seen anything like this on Johnny Carson. I really haven't, Jennifer. This is, oh my goodness, this is Marcy. He's, he does have a wonderful voice. I got my mom into Morrissey, um, and then she went to see him on her own one time. I don't have time to get into that story. Oh, this trip down memory lane, I'm like almost in tears up in here, up in here with the tears, tears of, I don't know what. I just felt like, I don't know, I'm going to give a little Gen X love, all right? Oh, by the way, shout out to Kate. I'm reheating Kate's coffee. That's a private joke. You'll just have to understand it at another time. Okay, so here's the deal. Patreon, buy me a coffee, sign up for the newsletter. Just go to my website, jenkirkman.com. Every tab there will take you to shop for my merch that we give to charity. Buy Patreon. That supports me. The anxiety stuff that helps you. We did it. We got through an episode. I have some things to recommend movies. There's a great documentary on all the things, Amazon Prime. Uh, buy it if you can. It supports my friend J. Elvis Weinstein, who does the Thought Spiral podcast with my other dear friend Andy Kindler. And he uh, literally paid and for like made this entire documentary himself of um, famed uh, kind of rock persona michael debar even if you never heard of him you'll fucking love it if you love anything like 
English and, and glam rock and 70s and 80s, like, watch this documentary. It's called Who Do You Want Me To Be? And uh, I love the Walter Mercado documentary. How did I never know about him? Uh, called Mucho Mucho Amor on Netflix. There's a great documentary on Amazon about slim errands. You know those fancy pictures of ladies by the pool in Palm Springs? Well, that was a photographer named Slim Errands. And uh, he was a World War II photographer who went in and photographed when the concentration camps were discovered. And then after that, he was like, I think I'm going to take pictures of nicer things from now on. So he kind of rebranded. And uh, his story is pretty interesting, too. So those are some documentaries I enjoyed this week. Oh, a longer episode. There we go. And uh, until next week, have fun.